0: Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and today I'm putting out a special episode for Bell Let's Talk Day. My guest this week might not be going to Pyeongchang, but he might just become your favorite Olympian anyway. Travis Garrett is a Canadian freestyle skier. He finished 7th in the world in aerials at the 2014 Sochi Games. He's also a former runner-up at the World Championships in Norway. But just this past year... He added another title to his bio, Mental Health Advocate. The Olympics are already a life of highs and lows for many athletes. Now imagine all that work, the mental strength you have to build, while also living with bipolar. That's the life Travis lives, and he's determined not to let it define him. His strength, his vulnerability, and the way he carries himself have turned him into an inspiration for many. I caught up with Travis at a coffee shop to hear his story. Here it is. I remember for me, I was probably in grade one or something like that, Christmas morning, getting a snowboard. Knowing Kitchener, Waterloo, in this area, there's not really a lot of mountains around here, but we took the snowboards out to the schoolyard where there's a bit of a slope and and got out on there. In your case, when did you first get a pair of skis and uh, strap them on and try that out?
1: I think mom and dad taught me and Tyler, my younger brother, uh, how to ski when we were four and six. My first memory, and we have video footage of this and it's incredible, is us skiing in our backyard in Milton. We have a two-acre property in the country where it has like a little bit of a downslope. And mom and dad would take the snowblower. They'd blow all the snow from our two-acre property into like one line so that you could build the little hill, go down this little mogul run, if you will, and then hit a jump. And that was my earliest memory of, like, skiing, and skiing for me has been such, like, a family affair. Yeah. Parents do it too? Yeah, parents got us into skiing at a very young age, and it was something we did on every weekend. We'd drive up to Collingwood, or uh, we'd often ski at Snow Valley Ski Resort, just north of Barrie, and um, they'd... Attached dog leashes to us actually to slow us down, slow us down from going too fast or getting into the woods. But you know, Ty and I broke off from that really quickly, and uh, we kind of excelled at such a young age and just had so much fun doing it as a family affair.
0: I've been on skis once, and that was my one memory. Is trailing behind my dad. He's got the rope kind of pulling yep. me where I'm supposed to be going. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that's a big difference, though, from, from downhill skiing to then launching yourself off jumps and throwing yourself in the air and contorting in all these different ways. When did you first start uh, getting into that side of the sport?
1: Um, again, it came down back to my parents who um, put me in gymnastics when I was just two years old. So yeah. I have photos of mom holding me up on the high bar. Uh, when I was just two and we had learned the acrobatic side of my sport at a very young age where we were practicing both gymnastics and trampoline um, probably over 20 hours a week even growing into at, that age. At, at such a young age right so we got so comfortable going upside down and it became second nature so to combine that with the skiing skills that I'd learned over the years with trampoline and gymnastics as a background all you want to do is combine them all and do flips on skis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at the age of 10, I did my first flip on skis in my own backyard. And yeah. that's kind of like what kicked it off, like got me excited about doing the biggest and craziest tricks you can do on skis at that time. Yeah. So and I don't think
0: YouTube was quite around back then, but there were probably videos, right, circulating. What were you watching and seeing, whether it was X Games stuff or or Olympic stuff, seeing, you have to see somebody do it first to think, I want to do that. Uh, what do you remember?
1: Yeah, so when I was 11 years old, we had started traveling more and more for like just big air competitions, so I wasn't necessarily in aerials yet. Yeah. So I went to a, a hill in Quebec called Mount Arford, where four-time World Cup champion Nicholas Fontaine was hosting the event and doing an air show at the same time. Ty and I both competed at that event, and I did a just a big 360, like one of your simplest tricks, but I was so young that I ended up blowing away, like Nico, who was one of the father figures in aerial skiing, right? So it was really cool to have him acknowledge me and then convince me to convert to aerials. So it was because of Nico that I started training in Lake Placid, New York, where they had a water ramp facility where you can practice your tricks going down a plastic ramp off the same kind of jump do your tricks in the air and land into a pool. This kind of allows you to do new stuff, harder tricks, and not necessarily get as hurt when you are trying those new things. And then from there, you take it to snow. And um, so it's really through Nico competing in Monarfred, Quebec, that kind of pushed me towards wanting to do what he did. Yeah.
0: That was big too, right? I mean, here's, here's Nico, this guy who is, as you mentioned, uh, sort of a, a father figure, a founding figure. What did that say to you or how are you thinking seeing this guy much older kind of pick you out and and see something in you?
1: I was pretty much starstruck. Yeah. I was like I, I see this guy and then two years later he's competing at the Salt Lake Games yeah. in 2002. He didn't necessarily win the event or do very well. I think he touched back on landing but to see someone that I knew and someone who recognized me as a potential in a sport you know I felt included. He, he treated me as one of his teammates and I was 10 years old and at that time so after seeing him compete at the the games in 2002 I was like okay now you need you need to plan and I started planning my my years and how many tricks I'd have to do this year to get to where I need to be at the games in 2010 or 2014 because I knew it was going to be a bit of a push to get to Vancouver
0: right around the same time maybe even sooner uh, you would mentioned that you were just starting in your backyard, you and your brother would have Backyard Boys uh, on, your, <laughs> on your winter coats as you're competing. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Backyard Boys was uh, something just our family created because we weren't affiliated with any particular ski club at the time. Yeah. Both Ty and I were competing in mogul skiing um, just to gain experience and, and ski because we, we had such a love of skiing from, from day one. So because we weren't affiliated with any particular club, mom and dad coached us on the hill. So we'd go ski bumps and all over Ontario and Quebec for that matter. And we needed a name for ourselves. So (laughs) we started it off in our backyard and it's always going to be there. Backyard boys. That's pretty cool. Okay, so
0: you get picked out by Nico around age 10. What comes next for you? You start training, you know, in water jumps. Take me from there until, you know, 2010 and, and 2014.
1: Yeah, so Nico ended up starting up a program called Jump 2010. So he'd recruit athletes from different sports, so gymnastics, trampoline, skiing. They tried diving, and what ended up happening was after training in Lake Placid, New York, he was the founder and builder of the water ramp facility in Quebec City. So I've been in Quebec City now for 15 years, but um, once the ramps opened, I was the first kid off that jump. And this Jump 2010 program that Nico was building and had founded was to recruit athletes and get them up to max degree of difficulty Mm -hmm. in such a short period of time that most athletes wouldn't be able to make just to push for those 2010 games. There was a lot more funding back in the day when Canada was hosting the Olympics. And these programs were incredible. They had housing, food, um, access to amazing training facilities, especially in Quebec. Uh, where athletes tend to be a lot better than most other countries in, or most other provinces in Canada actually
0: so at this stage I mean you're still in school right middle school and high school yeah how do you how do you balance that with trying to you know get to where you can compete in Olympic Games
1: Yeah it took a lot of understanding from my um, my school part uh-huh. I, I grew up in uh, in Milton as I said and I went to WI dick middle school for grade seven and eight and then I transferred to Milton District High School. Yeah. But at the end of the at the end of the day I had missed over fifty percent of my classes because I was away training. Yeah. So I had an amazing principal and teachers who allowed me to take my work on the road with me. I'd have to do my homework in the car on the way to the Ski Hill and then get home. I'm thirteen years old at this point, right. living with older athletes who kind of took me in under their wing as me being the youngest athlete on the team at the time mm-hmm. and they'd encourage me to get my school done and all of the older athletes that were competing on the world cup circuit at that time always told me one thing and that was stay in school mm-hmm. um, and i've taken that to heart because um it allows you to create balance in your life when you are competing in training you need a distraction a healthy distraction yeah. from the stress and pressure of trying to make it to the biggest sporting event in the world. Yeah.
0: Which is probably yeah. important to hear that from them too, right? Because otherwise you're thinking, what am I doing this homework for? I'm trying to do backflips. No kidding. <laughs> like, jumps. what does
1: is, what is calculus have right. to do with doing <laughs> yeah. triple backflips right now uh, in my life? And where's that going to get me? Yeah. But I ended up going more into the business side of, of education, and I love that side of education. Uh, my sport as well. so I've created you know, a lot of partnerships with, with big companies and, and little companies for that matter who you learn to work with a particular organization or company to maximize exposure for them and you know financial support for, for your journey to get to the Olympic Games because it's difficult being an amateur athlete in Canada where you know funding is a little bit difficult to, to get. 2010 comes around.
0: Canada's hosting the Olympic Games, first time in your lifetime. You're not competing as an athlete, but you, you get involved. Uh, how did you get involved in the Games, and, and what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, having the Games come to Canada was probably the, one of the greatest moments in my life. Um, I had the opportunity of four-running at the Olympic final, which just means that you get to jump in front of the judges and, and crowd. Okay. And um, you're scored, but it doesn't necessarily count towards the competition, but... I was doing my easier, more basic triple backflips at the time, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I I nailed the jump, and we still have the footage. And to see the world come together through sport yeah. is incredible, and to have it on home soil was even better. We watched all sorts of events, and they'd post these massive video screens on the sides of buildings to watch hockey games, and yeah. you'd go to. Um, restaurants, cafes, bars, anything like everyone was showing the Olympics and it was one of the greatest moments of Canadian history in my life. Did you
0: go to opening or closing ceremonies? Any of those things?
1: Uh, In 2010 I didn't make it to opening or closing because it's strictly um, for uh, athletes that are competing at the games, Uh, but we can get to the the Sochi experience a little later, yeah.
0: What about about in Vancouver still, are you meeting any of these athletes that are getting you starstruck and, and being like, that's, you know, this person or that person?
1: Well, having tickets to the aerial event and watching that with my family was so cool. I'd I'd watch, you know, whether it was Warren Scholdice or Kyle Neeson or Steve Amishel, for that matter, who had won so many events in their life. And it was Kyle who was ranked first after qualifiers. And uh, I remember seeing him at the bottom of the hill. We gave each other a high five and he was just ecstatic. But I was like, keep your cool. You have another jump to do. And like. So to watch them in on a more personal level, I felt more invested in my sport than ever. What is that
0: mental process like being in a competition, jump by jump? I mean, it happens so quickly, right? It's just a matter of seconds that each jump takes place. And uh, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do in the air and how it's going to compare to what your competitors are going to be doing. Um, Tell me about the mental
1: side of things. I'd say our, the mental side of any uh, sport at the highest level is so mental. I'd say it's close to 80% for me, mm-hmm. where you need to be mentally on and like ready for anything to happen in a split second. Um, our jumps take three seconds in the air. Mm-hmm. And you need to have your flight plan uh, established and ready in your mind at the top of the hill. So what you'll see us do is a lot of visualization techniques that we learned through sports psychology or just watching other athletes growing up. And this is so that we get in the right frame of mind before each jump. And you need to be in, it's so cliche, but the zone. Um, right. You need to be in the zone and that's what I live for. That moment where nothing else matters except what you're focusing on right now, because if you're not focusing on the right things, that's when danger can happen and you get into trouble. But you also need to be prepared for the worst let's say you're two kilometers too slow because of a headwind, yeah. or the opposite could be true with a, a tailwind. I mean, you need to learn how to stretch, pull, um, and these are all just terms of elongating your body or pulling your body in a closed position so that you increase or decrease flip rotation, and it's it all comes down to your frame of mind.
0: How many breaks and pulls and strains have you had? Are are you still keeping track or?
1: (laughs) Oh I lost track a long time ago. My body's a little broken um, not just now but always just from our sport and I think that's uh, why we work out so much in the gym and find balance in our training programs as well so we have uh, an incredible uh, team behind the athletes so we have physios, uh, massage therapists, uh, technical trainers, physical trainers, and a lot all these teams are in place so that you peak at the right time and you create a training program that allows you to get through the season, yeah. um, whether it's injury-free or injury maintenance often, all the way up to calculating how many jumps and how many twists you do in, in a summer. So we shoot for a particular number, but we're, we have some leeway with everything that we do just because of this team behind us.
0: How many falls would you say it takes for you to nail a particular trick? As you're trying it out, seeing if you can you can do this, how much of that, how much of the error comes before the the success?
1: Oh, well, that's why we do a lot of progression in our in our training. So with the water ramp facility, we kind of limit the amount of crashes that you take. Um, your body can only take so many. And I think there's that rule, that 10,000 hour rule, um, yeah. that says you know it takes 10,000 hours to get good at uh, to become an expert at anything in life. And I'd say that's uh, on the on the on the lesser side. Yeah. Um. We've been jumping and training for so long, and you're always seeking perfection in everything that you do. It, you never really find it. How many perfect jumps have you ever seen in competition or training, for that matter? For me, it was only one, and that happened at the 2011 world championships in deer valley utah Mm -hmm. where my teammate we call him wookie um, but his name's warren scholdice he did a perfect scoring lay triple full full so it's a quadruple twisting triple backflip executed to the t and it was um incredible to watch and be on um you know just have the canadian name behind you when you're competing internationally
0: yeah So you see things like that. You watch him in 2011, you were at the games in 2010 and and being able to see some of those events, getting a a taste of what it's like to go down those jumps and and have a crowd there watching you. What happens between then and 2014? What's your focus on getting to those games in Sochi and and being a part of those?
1: Well, at that same event where Warren Shouldice uh, executed that perfect trick and, and finished first, that was my year where I was awarded International Rookie of the Year. I'd finished sixth at that same World Championships event, and um, that kind of kicked off my reality where it was like, wow, this is not no longer just a dream. This is like something that you can work towards, and it can become reality. Yeah, You have a chance. And so you set across another four-year plan, because the Olympics are every four years for us, and you execute your plan as close as possible to get you to where you need to be. So after International Rookie of the Year in 2011, I got injured in 2000, end of 2011 at a World Cup in Lake Placid, New York. I fell short in flip rotation. I ended up tearing my meniscus and my MCL in my right knee and then um, took some time off. Three months on the couch at home was probably too much for my mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, She's not used to seeing me at home that long, and it was a bit of a, you know, longer rehab for me. But it got me more excited than ever to get back on skis because that was the longest I'd been off skis since I was six years old. Mm-hmm. And um, I come back and I had one of the most amazing seasons of my life in in 2013. I had won my well won my first World Cup medal, mm-hmm. and that was actually at home on home soil in Val Saint Come, Quebec. Okay, um, so I had family friends. Uh, teammates all cheering me on at that event and that was my first taste of the podium at such a big event and um, after a couple more podiums including one silver medal at world championships in Voss Norway I uh, pre-qualified for the Olympics and what that meant for me was uh, an opportunity to plan for a progressive peak towards the 2014 Olympics in Sochi. Um, So I was, I didn't have to compete at every single World Cup leading up to the games. I could pick and choose which events I wanted to jump at and essentially peak for, just for the games and not necessarily at the events leading up to it. So
0: a pre-qualify means your spot, you're in? Yeah, I'm in.
1: Um, So I was in in 2013. Uh, named to the Olympic team in 2014 uh, just through due diligence and stuff and make sure you know you get through the season right yes in an extreme sport anything can happen right where you know you're dealing with injuries on all the time so we created such a smart plan and I trained so hard And that meant training both physically and mentally I was working with sports psychologists and every kind of specialist you can think of to get me to where I needed to be for for the games What's
0: your team like around you? How many people are, are working with you on making sure that you're peaking at the right time?
1: Um, we have a, like so many trainers and, and staff through Freestyle Canada that we have access to. I have um, two technical coaches. I have a physio and physical trainer all in one. So he's, uh, his name's Joe. He's awesome. He takes care of our bodies on the physio table and then shows us programs that we need to do to maximize strength quickness, um, you name it, in the gym, mm-hmm. and do a lot of rehab programs because you're always dealing with little injuries that, you know, are nagging your body a little bit, whether it's sprained ankles or sore knees or back or this, that, or the next thing, so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, so you get that pre-qualification word. What are you thinking? You know, this is Canada, this is your dream, getting to put on that, that maple leaf for the Olympics.
1: I was at the bottom of the hill in Norway, and my, my parents had come to watch, and it was actually my mom who told me that I had just qualified for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. I was so ex- just ecstatic with finishing second at Worlds that I I had almost completely forgot about the Olympic Games. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it sunk in while I was doing. Uh, we do a lot of drug testing after every ever ev- after every major event uh, where you finish on the podium. So I was sitting in the waiting room waiting to go pee and. Um, you know sinking in I'm like I'm going to the games this is a lifelong dream coming true yeah um, so yeah it took a while to yeah
0: so how'd you how'd you celebrate in Norway
1: after finding that out oh we it was the funniest thing ever because I hadn't eaten all day and we were being taken to a traditional Norwegian restaurant style cookhouse yeah and we ended up eating sheep's head for dinner <laughs> 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 We uh, we saw the process that it took to get that sheep's head onto our plate, and it was the most disturbing thing I think I've ever eaten and the weirdest thing I've eaten yeah. in all of my travels around the world. So we just celebrated around a big, long table with uh, all the other athletes from around the world. I mean, yeah. we're such great friends with the Swiss guys, the Aussie uh, folks, and everyone in between, and uh, it was just nice to sit around a table and have a laugh at what we were eating and, you know, where where we'd been and what we'd come through that year.
0: Tell me about the, the hype, the emotions going into the 2014 Olympic Games in Sochi. You know you're on the team, you've managed to stay injury free or, or enough, <laughs> enough, <laughs> <laughs> enough, so, enough yeah. minor injuries that's not going to stop you from going. Yeah. Uh, how's that feeling as, as you're getting you know, the days are they're counting down to the games?
1: Yeah, I think, um, Canadians have such high hopes of their athletes, whether it's in an Olympic year or not. And uh, having pre-qualified for the games, I think um, pressure started to rise very quickly. Where Team Canada and um, Freestyle Canada and all my partners were uh, now looking at, you know, podium potential at the games. So yeah. you're no longer just a contender at the games; you're or qualified. You're you're now a contender for a medal. Right. And with that comes a lot of extra pressure and stress that didn't necessarily come from external factors I put a lot of that pressure on myself as well Um, having won three medals the year before and winning my first World Cup in China um, the year of the games I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to to compete at my best and knowing that I trained so hard I had to go into the games knowing that I had no regrets Uh, no regrets regarding training lifestyle anything so I, I had to be on point and that was, that was my goal and that was I think the hopes that Canadians had for me as well. That is a different
0: experience right because before that you're to some extent at least you're competing for yourself and your, and your own I guess gratification from results and, and you know pushing yourself to do your best but then you add the weight of a country onto uh, you add the expectation onto performance and, and that can easily start you thinking in a different mind frame let's talk about the games then the opening ceremonies you're there for that you're around fellow athletes you're in olympic village you're there for it all something that um you know very few people get to experience
1: yeah i mean going going to sochi was probably the coolest thing i've ever done in my life mm-hmm. um walking and opening ceremonies like up this huge hallway with surrounded by canadian athletes that you've idolized your whole life <laughs> um and then knowing that my parents were in the in the crowd somewhere during in this massive stadium, and everyone in Russia was screaming for every country, and I think that's what mattered most to me um, at that point in my life. Where it doesn't matter where you're from uh, or who you are, what what sport you do or anything. Um, sport brings so many people together, mm-hmm. and the Olympic Games is just iconic for for that and to hear 80,000 Russians and um, people like just screaming for Canada was one of the coolest moments of my life where nothing else mattered. You're walking in with a huge smile on your face and um, you're finally there. I think I, I cried when I, I landed in Sochi for the first time knowing that, you know, opening ceremonies are in four days and... You have time to just hang out in the Olympic Village, which you've dreamed about your whole life. This was a good cry, as opposed. It was a very good (laughs) cry, challenge, Let me tell you, I was like ecstatic. Just listening to my headphones and uh, flying into the city, and then you get pushed through Olympic lines and in buses, and you're shuttled to everything. And security's high because you're in Russia and uh, you're at the Olympics. But it didn't take away any part of my joy and and happiness of. Reliving it, well the Olympic Games for the second time, although the first time was just a little bit different in in Vancouver. But uh, yeah, who's the first
0: person you see? You sit down in Sochi, whether it's somebody like a Sidney Crosby, a Kaylee Humphreys, or a Shawn White, and you're like, "Holy crap! I'm at the Olympics right now."
1: Um, I'm not sure that I had a one particular moment when I got to the games, yeah. but I know doing closing ceremonies in Sochi, we were just hanging out with Sidney Crosby and everyone every Canadian athlete was trying to take selfies with him but I was just (laughs) like let's sit here and talk man like (laughs) I don't necessarily want a selfie with you but we were with Luongo and but it that was the only moment in my Olympic experience where even a one individual athlete was put on a pedestal and that was Sidney Crosby every other athlete seemed to be just on par like you're you're just a normal person doing something cool yeah. Um, so that was neat for me to just be amongst other like-minded individuals who, at the end of the day, are just normal people. As an athlete,
0: are you getting a chance to attend other events? Or are you so drilled into I've gotta compete in my own event. Uh, like, you know, maybe after your event's done. Do you get a chance to go to see other other events that are happening?
1: Yeah, so I compete on I usually compete on day ten of the Olympic Games, yeah. which was uh, fell on February seventeenth if I'm not okay. wrong. So before my event I kept it pretty low key. I was in my dorm. Uh, we'd go to the calf with my coaches and stuff and keep everything as normal as possible because at the end of the day yeah it's the olympics but it's the same three seconds that you've been training for your entire life and entire career right but after the games that's when stuff got really interesting and i'd go and see other events and my partner visa brought me to the gold medal game yeah and uh just incredible hockey and incredible sport across the board and we'd sit in canada house and Watch other events with whether it's with my family or other athletes, and then the Canada Olympic House is where my family were. Whole family came to see you? Whole family came to see me, awesome. yeah. It was amazing. We'd, uh, I didn't get to see them much before my event. I saw them maybe once in 10 days, but they stayed the entire time. Yeah. And um, there'd be Olympic celebrations of podium results and just celebrating. Canada and Olympic sport. They
0: probably got to see more of the games than you did. They're, they're sure. the ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, tell me about your your actual event, whether it was February 17th. Uh, you finally, I mean, it's been years in the making, right? Pretty much a lifetime in the making of getting to this first chance to compete at the games. And you're at the top of the hill looking down at the jump below you.
1: Yeah. We had, uh, I think we had four days of training before my event. And it was probably the most stressful time of my life mm. I was I realized where I was and where it come from and I was all alone I had uh, I had no other teammates with me that were competing in aerials just because of uh, injuries or lack of qualifying for the games so I I felt like I had the weight of a l- lot of expectation from myself and the country included um, to do well at these games uh, I had a massive breakdown on day two of training um, but then my sports psychologist and my coaches talked me down from that. And you learn that it's not just another day. Um, it's the day you've been waiting for your entire life. And you've built so much hype around this one event. But um, again, it comes back to that mental frame of mind that you need to be in up top where nothing else can matter. You can't be looking at the 5,000 cameras staring at you or the 15,000 human crowd um, that are applauding and cheering for not just me, but everyone. You take it one jump at a time and that's kind of how I live my life right now. It's just one jump at a time. So how many jumps did you get in, in those games? So my first jump in qualifications, I did five flips. Okay. Uh, three of them backwards and two of them forwards on the landing hill. So in areas, that's not what we want. <laughs> it's not good. You lose a lot of points for that. Uh-huh. But I was able to sit down in the snow for a second, think about what i had just done i stood up saluted the crowd and then got back in my bubble got back in the zone and said you know this is your opportunity you have a second chance at qualifying for the final round of of competition uh here in sochi and i was going up the t-bar in the pitch black dark looking outlining the mountains and just thinking about what a normal jump would look like Mm -hmm. and it didn't need to be anything spectacular but i had to do three flips (laughs) and land the jump. I went up and did an awesome uh, quadruple twisting, triple backflip to put me into the finals. Uh And uh, from then on, I I went to do two more rounds of competition. So they take the top 12, they cut it down to, in Sochi, I believe it was eight, and then top four for the finals. Uh, I ended up finishing seventh after coming in a little bit short on my full, double, full, full. Um, which, so is, I would, which is what exactly? So that's a, j- just a different variation of a quadruple twisting, triple backflip. Okay. And uh, <laughs> it sounds they're easy all to say, but <laughs> <insane>. yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, uh, they're intense tricks, but um, we've done so much progression after this date that, you know, you don't think about the twisting and the flipping. It just comes so natural. Yeah. But unfortunately, on my second jump in finals, I was 0.54 kilometers an hour too slow coming into the jump, and that resulted in me having to puck my legs in a little bit, so making my body a little bit smaller to increase my flip rotation. And you can feel
0: that as you're going down. You're you're thinking. I know. You're not thinking (laughs) 5.4. No, I
1: don't think 0.54, but uh, I know I'm a little slow, so. I get into my takeoff a little bit, which just means I'm, I'm leaning back a little bit further just to cr- increase flip rotation, but I had to break form, which the judges don't like. Mm. They take points off and uh, I lost just enough points to, to skip out from the, the final four and shot at a podium uh, in Sochi.
0: What is your ace in your back pocket, the trick that you, you know, you're, you're to nail every time and the one that you
1: know is, is your best. My trick is called the double full full full. So it's one of the more complex and trickier uh, quadruple twisting triple backflip variations uh-huh. uh, where you actually execute two full rotations in your first flip. But because your jump is at 71 degrees of an angle, um, you're starting your flip and twist uh, so much later so you have to finish that double full um, before flat back before you f- get into your second flip mm. and then in the second flip you do one more full rotation and then in the third flip you oh, had yeah. take a good look at the ground and do one more full rotation before landing <laughs> 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 it's crazy you're explaining it I can kind of picture it
0: but it's like I, I don't think anyone can quite experience it unless you're actually doing it
1: yeah to do four four rotations and three flips in three seconds, yeah. There's a lot of arm motions going around. So when you see us flailing our arms up top, right. that's just us visualizing the complex arm motions that we need to do to create tilt twisting okay. and more flips or more twists. Yeah. And yeah. So 2014,
0: you finished seventh in that experience. Um, the immediate aftermath of that, you're done. You, you know, you're no more chances up top. And you know you, you got to live with the result. What is that like for you?
1: Well, I was sitting in the corral, sitting beside my sports psychologist, and my technical coaches were still up top on the jump and on the in run. So I'll have a top coach with me that stands with me up top, making sure I'm in the right frame of mind. Uh, but they were still up there, and I was down right before the media corral, where you have to do interview after interview. Yeah. And um, but at the same time, I wanted to watch the rest of the competition because I'm here and I, I want to see Anton win. Do it's a, the best people in the world, right? Best people in the world, right? Your top four top four male uh, jumpers that are doing insane tricks. You know, we had Ji Guangpu, we had Anton Kushnier, Dave Morris.
0: And are these guys your friends too or are they mostly yeah. competitors?
1: No, these are all friends. I mean, yeah. we compete uh, week in, week out with each other yeah. um, every winter leading up to the games. So we become very good friends, yeah. close friends, and our, our moms talk to each other yeah. and, <laughs> you know, like my mom is the freestyle ski mom on Twitter, but she's, she treats Ji Guangpu uh the athlete from China just as well as he, she treats me and um, so to watch these guys compete and fulfill their dreams was just as cool i saw debatably the best jump of all time done on snow by anton kushnir and in, in at the games in sochi and he was doing a quintuple twisting triple backflip so he added an extra twist that i was unable to do at that time uh-huh. uh and increased degree of difficulty and I'm trying to get through the media corral and uh, people wanted to talk to me, but all I wanted to do was watch the event. Yeah. And I actually wish I, uh, looking back on it now, I wish I had taken a little bit more time to just compose myself, because I was a little upset and disappointed that I had finished seventh, mm-hmm. and I wish I just sat there for a little extra longer and, and watched the event and then went and did my media when I was a little bit more composed. That's media type. So you,
0: you finish your event, <laughs> and you get asked about it seven times in a row. But the same thing, maybe yeah. you relive yep. that <laughs> experience. Yeah, not easy. No. Um, I, I think something that stuck out to me, um, I read Clara Hughes's book a year or two ago, and she talks about the, the experience of an Olympic athlete you live for this moment, right? It happens once every four years. You have this incredible high, and then it's another four years before you get to that stage again. And it's not like you're, it's not, like you're not competing in the meantime, but a lot of the, the hype that you would get you know, across the country, it's only on the Olympics. They're not, you're not seeing that when you're competing in the World Championships. Uh, not at all. And that can be a very different kind of mental challenge, I think, to, to have to live with something for four years before you get another shot again to have to live with the results or think, you know, have people forgotten about me already? It's been, it's been two weeks and, and all of a sudden the people have moved on. Um, what's that experience like?
1: I really think the importance is to put the value on, on why you're doing what you're doing and enjoying the journey up towards your ultimate dream. Because once you get to the, your ultimate dream, which was the Olympic Games for me, we were talking earlier about self-worth and you can't place all your self-worth on your competitive experience. Mm-hmm. You have to enjoy each and every moment that gets you towards where you want to be in life. Yeah, And that's both as an athlete and as a person as a whole as well. I've learned a lot through the Olympic Games and, and my life. But a lot of that those life lessons happened to me after the fact and realizing now that I I, you know, I accomplished something incredible, finishing seventh at the biggest sporting event in the world. It's just, you know, I applaud myself now and and I'm able to do that. But at the time, I was devastated. I didn't leave my room from uh, the Olympic Village for two days when normally everybody else is going out and celebrating. I was like, you know what? Like, I I feel like I failed not just myself, but my country. And um, it's only after years of, you know, playing that rewinding that tape in my head, that I can actually say that I'm super proud to have you know, represented such an amazing country mm-hmm. and my hometown of Milton at, the, at yeah. the Olympic Games. Yeah. Huge peaks and
0: huge valleys, right, of, yeah. of being an athlete. Um, and compounded when you have a bipolar diagnosis. That happened, you found out about that after 2014, right? When, when did you finally get that news that you finally had a word to what you had been experiencing?
1: Yeah, for as long as I can remember, I've been suffering from mental health illness. Um, some of my earliest memories uh, involve uh, me being sick, um, sick mentally. The highs and lows of aerial skiing and Olympic sport and Olympic journeys um, are pretty crazy. They're, they're very bipolar in, it, in themselves, where I had the biggest high of my life at the Olympic Games, but also one of the lowest lows that I've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, when all of that came to a close and you're no longer in um, the spotlight and uh, I took some time. I traveled through Vietnam for three weeks and just kind of soul-searching, trying to come to terms with what happened and uh, it was in the fall of 2014 when I was having, you know, depressive um, and a depressive episode. Um, and is
0: that, had that been common for you before, or was that kind of a, a, new, a new low for you, emotionally?
1: Yeah, it definitely wasn't a new low. It was um, something that I've definitely experienced in the past, but it was, it was getting to the point where it was impacting my, my life as a whole. So I, um, I went to see a doctor and was given antidepressants uh, at the start. Because I had been on them before, medication has been part of my life for a very long time. Uh, but what ended up happening was three weeks later, I found that I had flipped into a manic and mixed state, mm-hmm. which led to me being hospitalized. And then given the diagnosis that I had type 1 bipolar disorder. And at the start, I was like, what, what does that mean? Like, right. what what does this involve now? Like, where do you go from here? So it's been a lot of learning and understanding what I have and research and uh, therapy and medication, you name it, to... Uh, yeah
0: and what have you learned about about what type one is like what what's the if you're to give you know the definition I'm sure you've gone through it many times before of, of explaining it to people uh, but but what's what's the general experience of somebody who has type one bipolar
1: I find bipolar disorder is very misunderstood in 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 society where people you people think that you can flip from being manic and like super happy to the polar opposite being very depressed um in a day or a night mm-hmm. i found that was v- really not true it was um more of an experience where you'd have symptoms of manic episodes or depressive episodes for three four weeks months uh you name it like i w- i'd have been depressed all summer uh and then medication flipped me and um it's not necessarily supposed to do that but when someone treats bipolar disorder with uh antidepressants that that can happen right mm-hmm. so it's it was more me learning to accept what i had now i have a name for what i've been experiencing my whole life mm-hmm. but what next like i i was ashamed mm-hmm. i was ashamed to tell people i couldn't even phone my coach to tell him that i wouldn't be showing up to training the next day i was in the hospital so that was tough for me
0: so and and this was a coach that you would have seen pretty frequently, or was th- this was in one case where? No, you know, I
1: spent more time with this coach than anyone else in the world. I yeah. mean, we were we're so close, and to tell him one of my most deepest darkest secrets, I guess, that did just come to light, um, felt next to impossible. Who did you tell first, and and um,
0: how did that go of first confronting that within yourself, and then? letting other people know
1: it took quite a while initially to tell people the first person I told was uh, my coach Dennis Mm -hmm. just because he was going to expect me at training the next day and I had to build up the courage to to inform him that you know i had been diagnosed with this uh, this illness and I was more ashamed that I wouldn't be able to go to training than I was of this life-changing diagnosis right Shortly thereafter, I ended up telling my folks back home in, in Ontario when I was training in Quebec at the time. And I was on, uh, I was on watch for a few days just to make sure everything was you know, getting back on track and becoming stable um, mm-hmm. after being in such you know, a, a difficult area of uh, mental states, if, if you will. That
0: could be a really hard thing to find the right mix of medications, right? If you can take multiple times to find one that's going to work, you know, granted, the one that works might also come with its own side effects tell me about the process for you of of trying out different medications until you found through that or through other means um, combined means of uh, whether it's therapy or more mindfulness practices what are the things that have helped for you
1: initially i was uh first put on a medication and although it it stabilized me very quickly. Yeah. It also came with a huge weight gain, uh, which in my sport isn't really ideal. Like we're looking for lean body mass. I'm trying to do backflips and I'm trying stable. to do backflips <laughs> on skis. I mean, you want to be light as possible coming oh. into that landing. Yeah. Uh, so I gained like 15 pounds in three weeks, and I was like, guys, this this isn't working. We need to find another solution. Yeah. So it's still been five years, and we're still playing with medication combinations and stuff because. It's not just one, but it's the side effects of another that don't work for you. Um, you know, one of the medications I was on created a essential uh, tremor uh, in my hand, so I'd shake. Mm-hmm. And that made me lose self-confidence. And so I had to switch again because I didn't like that. Or you had to get a therapeutic use exemption for a particular medication because you're competing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they take... Um, you know, drugs very seriously. Because so otherwise
0: those might be on the banned list of something or other.
1: Yeah, I was on a on a banned substance um, with a therapeutic use exemption yeah. um, allowing me to, to use this medication. But for a while, it's like you, you have to play with different combinations to see what works best. And I believe I've found stability. And therapy for me is... Um, it's very complex. It, it involves not just medication, that's just one side of the story and one side of the the picture where um, psychotherapy and uh, mindfulness, like you talked about, is, is super key. And I've done so much research on my own and done many courses, whether it's guided meditation or working with not just my psychiatrist, but having psychotherapists and so many specialists in my life that allowed me um, to find stability in my life again and you're still always going to have the highs and lows of of life but um, I think learning to manage the extreme states of uh, bipolar disorder especially in type 1 has been been key in my, my health.
0: And as it's been a few years for you now that you have a word to put to it it's something to understand what's happening. I imagine you've been able to identify, you know, when you're starting to enter a high or, or get into a season of lows. Uh, what, what are the sorts of signs for you that you're getting into a manic state and what, what goes along with that?
1: Yeah, learning learning more about yourself is has been such a, a long process for me. Because um, when you when you are in a manic state, you don't necessarily realize you are. It's finding um, and communicating with others around you, loved ones or friends, family, uh, coaches, teammates, you name it, and having them able being able to identify when you have you know whether whether you're climbing into a manic phase or not being able to get out of bed to go to training and just not being excited about life or training for that matter as much as you used to. So it's identifying those early on and then um, finding ways to get around it through uh, whether it's changing medication, uh, top therapy, um, whatever it is, it, it can help.
0: How have you found those different phases playing into your life as an athlete? How does it look different in a manic state versus a depressive state, how you're feeling about yourself and your training, how that affects your training.
1: Yeah, I was. I drew a sketch not too long ago where it was, um, it was just a little stick figure because I'm not very good at drawing. <laughs> or, I'm not very artistic yeah. at, at all, I'm more of a sports guy, but uh, I drew a stick figure and the globe, uh, the stick figure was on top of the world with his arms up as if he had conquered the world. Right. That's kind of how you feel in a manic state. But on the bottom of this sketch that I drew was a stick figure with the world and the little man on top uh, on his shoulders, Mm -hmm. which is what it kind of feels like when you're in that low, um, that state of mind where you can't get out of bed and you're not excited to do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I went two weeks at one point uh, where I, I, the only thing I ate was cereal. I couldn't even cook a, uh-huh. a proper meal. Like cereal is my all-time favorite food in the what, world. What kind but of cereal? Were you? I was eating Vector every day, okay. every meal for two weeks, and um, <laughs> it's a good plug for. After two weeks, Vector. yeah, no <laughs> kidding. After two weeks, I was like, yeah, something might be off. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of when you when you go get help, and um, but it takes a lot of courage, I believe, for someone who is sick with mental illness to go get help on on their own. It's a very difficult struggle because the last thing you want to do is find help and talk about your problems when you're feeling that way, Mm -hmm. which has been, um, one of the hardest things for me aside from acceptance. And now I try to live my life where bipolar disorder does not define who I am as a human being or what I'm capable of doing in sport or otherwise. Right. You can't let it define you and, and learning... To work with it, so when you're when you're climbing in the highs, you well, you're very productive, you're you're very successful, but you need to learn that it needs to be controlled at a certain point. And although it can be fun at the start, it can go sideways pretty quick. When did
0: you, in this process from wrestling with it yourself, accepting it, telling family, your coaches, your training staff, when did you decide to go very public and, and tell? You know, Canadians or tell your fans and followers, uh, especially when, as an athlete, I know there are concerns about oh, well, what are my sponsors going to think about this, what are, what are all these different people who are invested in me going to think about this, that those are the kinds of mind games you can start to play, right, and, and, and go down that path.
1: They're, yeah, they're hardly even mind games, it's reality. Yeah. I had a contract um, way back when, I won't say with who, but in the clauses it says if you are diagnosed with a mental illness, they can drop you as a partner. And this to me was mind-boggling. Yeah. I was like, what now? How do, how do I do my due diligence and make sure that every sponsor that I have, because it's, it's, it's for my success and long-term as well, like to be able to compete and train, I need financial and totally. uh, different kinds of support. So I had to personally contact all of my partners and tell them the news. And this was only four years later because I, I kept it quiet for four years. Mm-hmm. Tyler and I, um, my younger brother, we decided that, you know, it, it was finally time to make the video, share my story publicly. But this was four years in the making. Yeah. I, I had written this script years ago, yeah. but I was too scared to share it with anyone for fear of being dropped by partners, fear of feeling ashamed for what you have. And it took a lot of courage. And, um, support from my family uh, first and foremost that they were on board with what my decision was to to release it publicly and and share my story on on a bigger bigger scale Mm -hmm. I think that sport has helped make me into who I am but it's it's through a community involvement and you know being backed by so many amazing companies or individuals in the Milton community or Canada as a whole that kind of makes you who you are and why I wanted to share my story was so that I could help others mm-hmm. and it's so cliché to say you know like show them that you're not they're not alone yeah it's very true but i find the self help helping yourself before <laughs> you get to invest it in in others first and foremost that's the best way you can help any other any other individuals by helping yourself first
0: well there's kind of a few ways you can look at it right one is is taking ownership of it and and when you take ownership of it it's no longer controlling you but you're in control right exactly and then also i think uh, an experience which i'm sure you can relate to i know i know in my case when i uh, i did a fundraiser i wanted to bike across canada and i and so i did a similar thing i put together this video and said you know kind of laid it out there, here's, here's my story. The people that you hear back from on the other side of things, the people that you've known for your life and you haven't heard from them, what they're going through, or people you've never met before and you're getting messages from them, uh, the people that you get to meet because of that. What's that been like for you to um, to be embraced in a different way for, for you know who you, who you
1: are and, and what you're going through? Yeah, I mean, um, being... Being idolized by a lot of people for my accomplishments in sport was one thing, but to um, be recognized and and receive messages from other individuals who suffer silently through mental health, no matter what type of mental health disorder or illness, anywhere from anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, and a lot of people reached out to me saying, wow, I'm going to go and get help or, um, you know what, I have something that I'd like to share with you. and I'm not there as a, as a therapist or no, at all, no, yeah. I, I'm just there to lend an ear or um, talk about my own experiences and how that could maybe encourage or inspire others to get the help they need. I think probably
0: the side effect of some of that too, of, of sharing, is that you probably, I'm sure, you've made fans out of people that, you know, wouldn't have known of you as, as Travis Garrett's the, the skier, yeah. but they know about you now as being this mental health advocate and you've made fans out of them now because of that.
1: Yeah, it's probably the most positive side effect from having bipolar disorder that I've experienced (laughs) in my life. Um, Yeah, to inspire others is my only goal now. Um, You know, I'm constantly seeking the best path for me to be healthy, both physically and mentally. And others as well, as long as I keep sharing my story and shedding light on such a, a problem that it has so much stigma around it. And, you know, through help from... Clara Hughes and mm-hmm. uh, an individual Kendra Fisher she they, they've both helped me get the courage to, to share my story publicly and I've been inspired by them for for many years and reached out to both of them personally and now we you know we still talk and uh, share uh, something in common where you're not just an athlete anymore you're someone who has real problems
0: right. You've mentioned this before already in our conversation, uh, and I think you also wrote about it in in the piece that you did for CBC sort of from the first person experience, but it is so true how you know we are not our careers and we are not what we do you're also not your diagnosis. Uh, tell me about that
1: yeah, I am not skiing, I am not bipolar disorder I am Travis Garrett's the person who does both or has both um, in their lives and There's so much more to an individual than what they do for a living or their diagnosis. And I think that's an important message to send across to everyone across in the world that um, may share or have been impacted by mental health uh, issues, whether it's personally or through uh, someone else. I mean, I think we've all been affected by that in some way or another across our lives. And, yeah.
0: Let's talk about 2018. The Korea Olympics are just around the corner. They are. Uh, what's what's that looking like <laughs> for you?
1: Unfortunately, I've been uh, my body's beat up right now. I have a leg injury and a knee injury, and my body's just kind of falling apart. So, uh, I'll sadly be missing the qualification process that will get me to the Olympic Games. So, I won't be competing in Korea this uh, in this coming February. But at the same time, I'll be there in spirit, like cheering on my teammates and um, sharing the experience in any way possible with Canadians alike. Uh, whether it's setting up big-screen TVs everywhere across uh, Milton or Kitchener, for that matter, <laughs> or um, you know, sending uh, athletes personal messages, just showing my support and the support that they have across mm-hmm. uh, their country, and knowing, showing them that they're not alone in their uh, journey to represent Canada.
0: What, what is the, the sort of the life span of, of an athlete in your sport? Is, is 2022 within sight or when do our athletes kind of age out of competition? Uh,
1: I guess it depends on the length of your career as yeah. well. So like I started at a very young age and I'm 26 years old now. Yeah. Uh, China 2022 is definitely still in my sights yeah. where um, athletes and aerials can peak probably around my age, anywhere between 26 and 30 years old, yeah. and kind of cap out at you know, mid-30s probably is your latest. Some of the best jumpers in the world are in their early 30s, but again, it depends on how long you've been beating your body up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I started at such a young age, and I've had my fair share of injuries, but if I'm healthy, both physically and mentally, there's not anything I can't do.
0: Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about a few other kind of miscellaneous things. You were studying in Stanford while also training. Uh, you know, you're, in one hand, you're training at the top of your sport uh, as a very competitive athlete. You're also going to Stanford at the same time taking classes. How do you balance both of
1: those? I'm, I've always been in the, in the mindset that I'm in the pursuit of excellence in both education and sport. And I encourage that through my um, scholarship program at Milton District High School, where I grant the top male and female athlete student uh with uh you know financial support um leading towards their careers so it's always been important for me it's funny because when I signed my first sponsor um Chudley's Apple Farm Mm -hmm. a local Milton um Apple Farm signed me when I was probably 15 years old for the rest of my career um with two clauses one that I chase my dreams and go for it like a hundred percent. And the second, I stay in school. Uh So it's been important for me to pursue excellence in both education and sport throughout my career and find that balance between a lot of people call it the work-life balance, but for me it was sport-school balance. And coming off the slopes and sitting down to do some work was a great way for me to disconnect from that skiing world for a long time because you're so immersed in this culture And life where you're living with your teammates and coaches and that's all you have uh, for months on end but for me to have school in the background which was actually picked up by my partner Visa Mm -hmm. um, so they were encouraging me to stay in school and uh, I ended up graduating with a certificate of in advanced project management through Stanford this year and um, it was funny because Ty and I both actually graduated with the same certificate of the exact same day Uh and that was something that I can share with him now, and you know, sharing memories is what life's all about.
0: When was the last time you paid for an apple? Is that part of the
1: sponsorship too? We go apple picking all the time, and Dean, um, he's such a such an amazing guy who supports everything from yeah. the Milton District Hospital to the Center of the Arts and Sports and. Uh, he sat me down at fifteen years old and says, "Why should I sponsor you instead of giving money to the homeless mm-hmm. and My answer was, "Well, I can offer you value to uh, a, as a company, and you can follow me and my story through monthly updates and you know creating hype around sport in in a business because sport brings people together, no matter where you are
0: yeah yeah what um What's next for you after the, after the sport chapter closes of, of competing? Is it coaching? Is it something else? What keeps that flame going for you or excites
1: you? Uh, I'm definitely not the coaching type. I don't know if I have the patience <laughs> for that. <laughs> I've also lived this lifestyle for so many years that I think the coaching lifestyle is, is the exact same except on the, uh, uh, the other side of the stick. Right. <laughs> Um, so for me I've been on the athlete side of marketing management my entire career yep. working with sponsors and partnerships um, I would like to become on the uh, to go on the business side of uh, of sport and work as an athlete marketing manager for you know potentially one of the companies that I've worked with have, have, I've had the opportunity to work with in my career whether it's Red Bull Visa um, Chedley's Apple Farmer or who knows what so I'm not quite sure what's next but I know that Sport has given me so many learning experiences and, and qualities uh, that I can take and, and transfer over to the business world as well.
0: Let's say that somebody is listening to this and they relate to you, that maybe it's not bipolar they have, maybe they have some other form of mental illness or, or it speaks totally. to them. What do you say to somebody in that moment if they're, if they're still in that period of where you were before, keeping it to themselves and, and wondering where to go with that?
1: Well, I think the time needs to be right for any individual to share their story, mm-hmm. um, whether it's publicly or uh, just telling one person. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that could make the difference. And, and if that's a doctor, a, a teammate, a student, uh, a teacher, someone that in their lives that could potentially make that difference. And knowing that, you can't be ashamed for reaching out for help. It makes a world of a difference just having that support system in place I've been so fortunate enough to grow up in an organization that has um, like support staff and they've always been there to help me with my needs. But if anyone else out there is suffering with mental illness or anything else for that matter, just know that, you know, but just by talking about it can kind of help the acceptance part of things go a little bit quicker as well.
0: Thanks a lot for sharing your story. Anything else I, I haven't asked you about you still want
1: to put out there? I don't think so. I think uh, I think we're good. But, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to share my story. Hey, thanks. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and pass it along to someone else you think might like it theme music for story untold is by dr turtle off the album you um i'll ah next time on the show a conversation with one of the world's top slackline athletes about what it's like to find balance hundreds of feet in the air once again i'm martin bauman and this was a story untold see you next time